This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages. I'm your host, Jonathan, and this is episode 15, Normandy Stirs. continued to subdue and negotiate peace around England and Denmark, as well as brokering a tenuous control over Norway, the Kingdom of Dublin, the Isle of Man, and western lands in Sweden. Emma would continue in his absence to gather more influence and exercise it while her husband traveled what is quickly becoming known as the North Sea Empire. But a storm was brewing on the mainland, one that Emma and Canute could not have foreseen one that would send shockwaves throughout all of Europe in the next several decades. As Canute was consolidating power throughout his new kingdom, and as Emma would bear him a son, Hartha Canute, Normandy began stirring. No longer was Normandy's fate resting solely within its borders. Normandy began to feel the calls of their ancestors, Viking warriors and adventurers such as Rollo the Walker. Normandy began to awaken. Noble families like the Hautevilles began to get the itch for, well, more. While the ruling family itself would suffer its own tragedies during this decade and into the 1030s. As the Hautevilles rode south, a story we will get to in time, Richard III found himself unknowingly pitted against his brother, Robert I. Robert would make waves domestically, unsettling the shaky foundation of Norman nobility before pouncing on a tragedy that would seat him at the top of the duchy. Today, today we explore the story of Robert I, a man whose reign begins shrouded in dubious behaviors, but will one day stand tall amongst the great men in the Middle Ages. This one Norman duke will set the stage for arguably the greatest chapter in medieval history. What sort of Normandy would Robert I leave? Well, I hope you enjoy the show. Now, before we begin here, it's worth taking a minute and devoting some time to dispelling some not-quite-truths and some flat-out falsities regarding the main protagonist of this episode. First, referring to Robert I as, well, Robert I might be our first misnomer to dispel. As naming was not very accurately documented a thousand or more years ago, as well as the confusion between the merging of Scandinavian with with Frankish languages and cultural norms and whatnot, Rollo the Walker is sometimes referred to as Robert I. Well, this would of course make the Robert of this episode, in fact, Robert II. Now, no consensus has really been attained on this, but it's worth knowing this confusion, if anything, as evidence of the murkiness of the records from the time. For the purposes of this podcast, though, 
we will refer to the 11th century Norman Duke, Robert, as Robert I, as that seems to be the most widely used name today. The other, and arguably more important, idea we must clear up is the, is the other name that Robert I is sometimes referred to as, Robert le Diablo, or Robert the Devil. To be crystal clear, Robert I was never referred to as Robert le Diablo in life. This was actually a confusion that wouldn't happen for another 215 years or so, when a Dominican friar named Etienne de Bourbon first penned the tale of Robert le Diablo, a Norman knight who began his life as a, as a despicable ruffian and learned that he was actually the son of Satan. This fictional Robert would spend the rest of his wretched life fighting his familial instinct of corruption and become a good man. You know, this tale, we must remember, also appeared at the height of French chivalric romances, in which the animalistic man was tamed by either God or, most likely, a woman. Somewhere along the line, Robert I of 11th century Normandy was confused with the fictional Robert le Diablo, probably because of his shady ascension to the throne of the duchy. For the purposes of this podcast, I say we separate the two, as there is no evidence whatsoever that Robert I was called Robert le Diablo in his lifetime or immediately afterward. Okay, so with all that settled, let's begin our tale, a tale that begins... Okay, with a bit of with a bit of irony, actually. Remember how I said there was no evidence that Robert I was called Le Diablo? Well, it's highly likely that he did indeed murder his brother, Duke Richard III, and take up the mantle of Duke of Normandy himself. Okay, not perfect, but he still was never called Le, Diab Le Diablo to our knowledge. However, this is still very plausible, as Robert I had already brought a, a little civil war of sorts to his brother, Duke Richard III, already, and the instability it caused throughout the duchy was enough to loosen Richard's hold on his domain. Neighbors inside and outside the duchy began choosing sides and, and fighting well after the quarrel between the brothers formally ended, and quote-unquote new money, for lack of a better term, began rising within the ranks of Norman nobility. And as we know, the establishment, yeah, it hates competition. So there it stood. Richard III was seen as the protector of the settled establishment, while his brother, Robert I, was seen as the leader of this new aristocracy. Historically, when a lower class seeks to rise within a society, it never ends well for either of them or those already in power. And this instance was no different. Within a year, Richard III was dead, and Robert I had assumed the role as Duke of Normandy. However, winning a civil war is always just the beginning. The consolidation of power came next. Duke Robert's uncle, also named Robert, confusingly enough, had vehemently opposed him. But the catch was that his uncle was not only the Count of Evreux, but he was also the Archbishop of Rouen. 
Duke Robert assembled an army and marched on Rouen, Normandy's seat of power, by the way. A temporary peace was reached, which allowed the archbishop to escape. The duke also took advantage of his quote-unquote war with the church to seize properties owned by the church throughout Normandy, and he even exiled another powerful churchman, his cousin Hugo III d'Evry, the bishop of Bayeux. The next blow to Robert's power came not in military action, but in papal decree, which was, you know, far more devastating most times. Normandy itself, not just its duke, was excommunicated from the Catholic Church. Excommunication was no light matter in the Middle Ages. It was a formal censure on your activities, not just as a ruler, but as a soul who needed sacraments offered by the church. If you're on your deathbed, for instance, and you were excommunicated, your very soul was in mortal danger because church officials were strictly forbidden to give you last rites. An incredibly important and sacred practice one must receive prior to passing on. But politically, excommunication meant that you were no longer under the umbrella of protection of the papacy. See, Christendom was set up as one unity in a sense. Now, this hardly stopped kingdoms and empires within Christendom from fighting and and invading each other's territories and all that, but it was quite a safeguard against wanton violence from outsiders. Even though wars happened, if you were a member of Christendom, then you had to have an undeniably relevant reason for war against another Christian kingdom or empire. Or, I mean, let's be honest, at least a reason that the Pope could directly benefit from. So what does this mean for Normandy? Well, in essence, it meant that Normandy was no longer under papal protection. And with a Europe waking up from that, that little bit of an international stupor we call the Dark Ages, as well as a weak but annoyed French king who would have loved the opportunity to squash its rising duchy, Normandy was as vulnerable as one could find himself in the 11th century. Duke Robert, after seizing whatever he wished, essentially, decided to allow his uncle, the Archbishop of Rouen, back to Normandy. Normandy soon found itself back in the somewhat protective fold of Christendom. And more importantly, though, Duke Robert's point was made, made with an emphatic period at the end, too. Robert I, son of Richard II and brother to the former Duke, Richard III, yeah, he was in charge and the notoriously corrupt and quarrelsome Norman court would do well to accept that fact. So now that Robert I was firmly in the seat of power within this wealthy and powerful duchy of France, he turned his sights to establishing himself in the wider arena of European politics. Duke Robert stuck his nose in the civil war in Flanders, gaining considerable clout in the process, when he promised support to the ousted Count Baldwin IV, whose son, Baldwin V, with the support of the King of France, was causing quite a ruckus to the Northeast. This was a major slap in the face, as Duke Robert outright defied his French overlord. But at this point, the second of the Capetian line to hold the throne of France? Eh, 
he wasn't quite in full control of his rambunctious duchies to do much in retaliation. Robert towed the line right up to the point of no return, and then pulled back. Again, with an emphatic period, Robert established his position among Frankish vassals. He then repelled an invasion from the Duchy of Brittany in 1030. With one confirmed ground battle, Robert established his western border against his cousin, the Duke of Brittany, who was making moves for not quite clear reasons, but, but a duchy showing force against another duchy, especially one who defied their king, if successful, could only bolster one's status in the royal court, which could have been the reason for Duke Alan III to attack. He might have tried to look good in the eyes of the French king. However, this backfired. <laughs> Brittany backed off quickly, but Robert wouldn't soon forget this aggression, as we'll soon see. Let's take a quick trip north to England again, because the goings-on there will directly affect Duke Robert's decisions in the coming years. See, in the late 1020s and early 1030s, Canute was juggling a number of balls at the moment. First, he had set up his son with Emma, Hartha Canute, in Denmark to rule. And word came that Hartha Canute was already minting coins with the young ruler's face on them, proclaiming him king of Denmark. He was also developing quite the reputation for, well, having a good time, which was unsettling the delicate balance there. To Canute's northeast, those parts of Sweden under Canute's control were well, they were pretty vocal about not enjoying his reign too much, but nothing was flaring up quite yet. Upon returning to England from his highly successful pilgrimage to Rome, Canute was able to grab the obedience from the Scottish king. But Scottish obedience wore off as, as quickly as a Viking truce, as we know. Canute himself was overseeing England. Well, kind of. I mean, he relied heavily on his most trusted nobleman, one Godwin, remember that name, to do the ruling while he was away, at least officially. And we can't forget about Emma, who we can also assume was consolidating her own bit of power on the island as well. She began to set her sights on Winchester, the ancestral seat of Alfred, the House of Wessex, and the kingdom's treasury. And with Canute having to run back to Denmark every so often, there's no question that both Emma and Godwin were gaining in prestige and power. The Isle of Man? Well, the Isle of Man was giving Canute fits recently as well, as it was used as a base of operations for actions happening in Ireland and Wales. Yeah, Ireland, whom we have fairly strong evidence that Canute also held some pretty good influence over its largest and most influential port city, of Dublin. When we last left Ireland, Brian Boru, its first high king, had left the place more or less the way he found it, fractured and full of infighting. And if you remember Citric Silkbeard, yeah, he regained Dublin, and by the 1030s, he was a battle-hardened and, and he was ready for expansion. He set his sights on Wales of all places, probably because the Irish proved far more difficult than once thought to subdue. If he couldn't control Ireland, Citric wanted the Irish Sea, that vertical stretch of sea separating the coasts of Ireland and Wales and England. 
with Canute's blessings and resources in the hopes that Citrix set up a trading port in Gwynedd on the Welsh coast, which sent ripples across the largely ignored and quarrelsome kingdom. And finally, the biggest thorn in his side, and Emma's as well, was his ex-wife, for lack of a better term, as the marriage was never, never really recognized nor annulled in the eyes of the church. With Elfgifu, whom he married when his father was still alive, Canute had two sons, Swain and Harold Harefoot. Elfgifu and Swain were ruling Norway as regents, but they were, due to their incredibly harsh and unfair treatment of the Norse, experiencing a growing rebellion to their rule at the time, which of course is a rebellion against Canute himself. As an example of their terrible leadership, Swain enforced a law that said anyone leaving Norway without his express permission would have his lands taken from him permanently, and they would also be exiled. Word of their rule in its entirety was probably never actually received by Canute due to this, so the piecemeal reports he was getting were probably received far too late to fix any problems. And it was rumored that Trigva, the son of our old friend Olaf Trigvason, was vying for the throne in Trondheim. Add in a little splash of Welsh unrest on his western border, and Canute from Citrix moves, well, I mean, Canute had his hands full, to say the very least. And make no mistake, Duke Robert, he was watching it all. Now, in the midst of all of this around the North Sea Empire, and the apparent exhaustion of its king, Canute the Great, Duke Robert again was watching carefully. Remember, though, Emma, in her ruthless instinct for survival, abandoned her sons when she arranged this marriage with Canute. Part of the deal she brokered was that her sons to Canute, not those from Ethelred or those from Canute's previous marriage to the Northumbrian Elfgifu, would be first in the line of succession. With such a deal in place and three other claimants to the throne in Swain and Harold Harefoot from Elfgifu, and then Hartha Canute from Emma, well, Edward and Alfred didn't exactly stand much of a chance, but they wouldn't stop Robert from planning ahead. Succession crises? Well, for those that understand soccer, it's like this. The succession crisis itself could be seen as the ball being dribbled up the sideline toward the goal. Sometimes the smart thing to do would be to chip it expertly into the box at a teammate who hits it home. However, other times when the box is getting crowded with both defenders and attackers with their predatory eyes on the ball, the crown, well, sometimes you, sometimes you just have to throw your lot in the box and see what happens. Just like you can't score a goal if you're not in a position to score, you'll never gain power if you don't put yourself into a position to either accept or to take power. In just a few years, we will see the box get very crowded, with players looking to gain the crown or, or at least grab a little more power in the aristocratic hierarchy. Robert maneuvered himself into the box. He sent a letter with an envoy to King Canute in England, asking about his nephews. How long would they be staying in Normandy exactly? As it was, since they were exiled and welcomed by Duke Richard II, the boys were growing up in Norman courts across the duchies, moving every so often so as not to become quite so much of a burden to their benefactors. 
They owned no land and had no power or influence, except the promise of payment later. Robert used this as leverage. Canute, with everything else on his plate at the moment, simply ignored this question. Why in the world would he care about two upstarts from a previous marriage? Two guys who have claims to his throne and really who would have been killed on the spot just like Edwig, the king of the churls, if they were still in the country after Edmund's death years earlier. Such an affront could not be accepted by the Normans, though. To ignore a neighbor with the clout of Normandy, the homeland of your queen, was a level of disrespect that would not be tolerated. That, and, and well, if there was a reason to push the point home militarily, then that was it. The North Sea was still strong, held together by the cult of personality in Canute, but it was also a very busy place, and by creating a formidable fleet, Duke Robert sent a clear message. You have left me no choice. Setting sail, Robert's fleet forgot to check the forecast, though, because no sooner than they pointed their bows northward, a violent storm whipped up the sea, and by the time the clouds dissipated and the, and the waves returned to normal, and they regained control, they had lost many boats and men, not to mention their bows were facing the setting sun now. They weren't heading north. They were blown off course and were very near Brittany. In an echo of a few decades before, during Ethelred's reign, when England tried to invade Robert II's Normandy, Norman forces were also redirected by a storm to Brittany. And just like last time, the invasionary fleet didn't let a good opportunity go to waste. Robert decided to invade Brittany. I mean, that guy Duke Alex III of Wren, leader of Brittany at the time and his cousin to boot, tested him years earlier and was never fully taught the lesson he deserved, according to Robert. Normandy was not to be tested. He got off light last time when their uncle, the once-exiled Robert Archbishop of Rouen, intervened and negotiated peace. Well, there was no Archbishop here bobbing on the choppy waves of the Channel, and Robert now pointed his bows southwest. He landed on the coasts, sent his fleet sailing back home, while he led his forces through Brittany on a mission, not necessarily to destroy, but rather, rather to send a message. Back off, kid. Having heard of the aborted invasion, Canute threw up his hands and offered Robert an appeal to peace. War with Normandy was the last thing he needed to deal with. So Canute offered a shocking compromise. The boys could have half of England in return for peace with both England and Normandy. Now that Robert had the great Canute on his knees, he could rest easy and finally go on that trip he must have been itching to take. He decided to hold off on such a decision. He decided to make Canute do something he wasn't accustomed to doing. Canute was forced to wait on a decision. There was something he had to do first, something he felt compelled to do, maybe as an attempt to free his soul from any guilt he may have had, that is, maybe the guilt of fratricide, but no one knows for sure according to the records that have come down to us. Robert was going on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to the Holy Land. His biggest decision to make 
was who was going to rule in his place while he was away. And see, Robert didn't exactly have a firm heir yet. It wasn't that simple, and his nobility knew this, and Robert knew that they knew this. Remember that confusion about the line of succession up north? Well, Robert's pilgrimage showed that Normandy, too, was acutely susceptible to the same chaos should something happen to Robert. The most complicating thing about Robert leaving wasn't packing for such a trip, which, which was a massive undertaking in and of itself. It's the fact that Robert was never married. This, of course, was a problem in terms of lines of succession, and this was a serious anxiety-inducing issue among the nobility of any kingdom, even though most kingdoms, unbeknownst to me before the beginning of this podcast, admittedly. See, most kingdoms had an election system that, that they used to determine who their king or their duke or their count would be. We've seen this in play already on the podcast when Ethelred was elected by his noblemen to take the crown of England back when Swain Forkbeard died. And we've seen it again when the Witan elected Canute over Edmund in 1016. Now, that said, the whole idea behind having sons was still paramount, as the son was most likely to take the crown as a show of solidarity with the traditional ruling family. So, if Robert never married, then who would his successor be? In ancient Rome, this often manifested in the role of adoption. You know, Octavius was not the son of Julius Caesar. He was an adopted son. And both Lucius Verus and Marcus Aurelius were adopted sons who took the laurel wreaths jointly when their adopted father, Antoninus Pius, the emperor, died. And in other instances, we've seen a prominent family take the reins, which usually resulted in civil war, to be honest. But neither adoption nor civil war was a reasonable option for Robert because he had another plan. See, just a year after he took the reins as duke, Robert fell in love, madly and uncontrollably in love, it said, to the daughter of a tanner. Her name was Herliva, and she is known today as Herliva of Falais. Within a year, the year being 1028 to be exact, she bore him a son whom they named William. Now, due to her social status, Robert could never get away with marrying her. So it is said that he married her off in an effort to keep her living comfortably and happy to one of Robert's most trusted noblemen, Herluin of Contville, in 1031. She would bear Herluin two sons. Odo was the future Bishop of Bayeux, and Robert, named after the Duke, became the Count of Mortain. They also had two daughters, one named Emma, actually, who tied the noble family to the courts of Avranches and Fertimace. Apologies, I butchered those, I know. In addition to seeing that the love of his life was taken care of, Robert also gradually returned most of the lands and properties he stole from the church. But there is rumored to be one major regret he felt compared to, uh, excuse me, compelled to atone for. Maybe that of his brother, the doubtless murdered Duke, Richard III. It was highly encouraged by the church for people to take the trip to holy places around Christendom anyway. Some of these were shrines devoted to specific saints. Some were churches where pieces and parts of saints were on display and said to offer miracles at random for visitors. Upon death, 
saints were sometimes dismembered, and their parts were shipped off to churches and used as tourist attractions. One possible reason for Ethelred holding his marriage to Emma back in 10, uh, excuse me, 1002 at the cathedral in Canterbury was that Canterbury had just received a relic of this kind, and combined with the royal wedding, Canterbury was expecting a boon in tourists. Hair, fingers, teeth, clothing, and even personal belongings like combs were all used as holy relics to draw in pilgrims seeking a connection with the divine, and churches were only too happy to receive the financial support for their patronage. But don't kid yourselves, though. Pilgrimage were sold as spiritual undertakings, but they were also financial windfalls, too. The towns surrounding the church also saw a boost in economic prosperity while the relic was housed nearby, which only bolstered the prestige of that monastery and the monks who, who occupied it. And in every honest business, there were pretenders to pop up and take advantage of the situation, too. For instance, quote, in Palestine, the website Spartacus Educational says, it was possible to visit a cave that was supposed to contain the beds of Adam and Eve and a pillar of salt that had once been Lot's wife, end quote. Then there were the myriad of splinters and nails that were also said to have come directly off the cross that Jesus hung from and died from a thousand years ago. In short, for the towns and churches, pilgrimages were big business, honest or not. But for the pilgrims themselves, it was, as I said, a massive undertaking. The vast majority of Christians were simply unable to take on the financial burden of visiting some far-off place to see a saint's body part. They were simply unable to. In fact, there were many in the noble classes across Europe who could not afford to go on pilgrimage too. And on top of the huge financial burden to the kingdom or, or the duchy or even just the estate of the nobleman, pilgrimages were dangerous. Entourages loaded with riches, clothing, food, soldiers, supplies, and livestock paraded through the hills, mountains, and plains of Europe on their way to brave the waves of the Mediterranean in the hopes that the crew paid to take them safely to Alexandria, Constantinople, or Antioch, and they wouldn't renege on the deal and steal everything they had and murdering them to boot. On the high seas and in foreign lands, news traveled very slowly, and blame was hard to pin on one person. So when Robert decided to take a pilgrimage in 1034, this whole question about who would take over, not only in his absence, but in the chance that Normandy found itself without a living duke, well, this was huge. This was paramount. There was nothing more important for Robert to figure out prior to his departure. And his only option was his son, William, at this point, aged seven. Surrounding the boy with his most trusted advisors, Robert named William his heir, much to the outrage of his aristocracy, as the boy, again, was illegitimate. As a slight to both the boy and to Robert, they began calling William by the name of William the Bastard, thus trying to diminish his stake in the duchy just in case things went south for Robert along the way. Well, Robert made it to the Holy Land via Constantinople, and I, I haven't found any accounts of how it went specifically, but after he began his return from Jerusalem back to Constantinople and then home, he passed through the lands of Nicaea. It was there 
that Robert fell ill, and on July 2nd, 1035, Robert died of an unknown sickness and was interred. It took a few months for messengers traveling far ahead of the Duke's returning entourage to bring the news back home. Duke Robert I, Robert le Magnifique, was dead. His proclaimed heir, William, was now the Duke of Normandy. This seven-year-old boy, remember, was the descendant of Rollo the Walker, and he was the son of Robert the Magnificent. Every odds maker in Vegas would be betting against this kid, as he was not only surrounded by a corrupt aristocracy, but he was the leader of a duchy whose last duke threw its entire weight around, from Brittany to Paris and Flanders to England. And it was now up to him and his advisors to quell the impending uprisings left in the wake of Robert I's death. I hope you enjoyed today's episode on the life of Robert I of Normandy and how his decisions initially set his son up for massive failure. Please keep sharing this podcast with those you know in your social media accounts. And don't forget to tag us too if you share us on Twitter, at Wheel Podcast. Or drop a quick line about the latest episode on Facebook, Fortune's Wheel Podcast. I'd love to hear from you. Also, you can email the show at fortuneswheelpodcast at gmail.com. Robert was a formidable presence on the mainland and within the French court. Only a fool would doubt that. From now on, the 11th century is about to kick into second gear as movers and shakers around this part of the globe are making moves that are much more influential outside of their own borders than before. The so-called Dark Ages are now lit by the sparks of progress in the social, intellectual, and technological, spiritual, and political systems currently in place. It's safe to say that there is quite literally no going back by 1035, the year of not only Robert I's death, but also the death of King Canute. Yeah. On the next episode, we're going to see how things play out between the chaos of two of the rising stars of European politics, Normandy and England, as they simultaneously navigate their own succession crises that will have both immediate as well as long-term impacts for them, as well as folks around the continent and beyond. I can't wait to tell you about it.